What up, peeps? Top of the hour here on the East Coast. It is Monday. It's September 12th. The letter for September, of course, is you. You see me, G Swizz, and you're saying to yourself, wait a second, where's Dan Nathan? Well, once again, Dan Nathan is traveling. There's a Leonard Skinner song, Traveling Man. That's exactly what he is. Back on the West Coast yet again, going to another conference, representing risk reversal media, as they say. But you know what? Don't be alarmed. Don't be scared. Because look who you see there. That's the great Carter Braxton Worth of Worth charting. I'll point out, and we don't script these things, peeps, but you notice that I'm knotted up. You'll also notice that Carter is knotted up. And I will tell you, I don't know exactly what that means, but I don't think it augurs particularly well for a number of things. <laughs> Today's episode brought to you by FactSet, of course, financial data and analytics that are powered by tomorrow. Carter, you're powered by just intelligence and life, but we're powered by open exchange. How are you? How are you? And not only not coordinated in terms of nodding up, but also the white shirts. So this mm-hmm. is very, very unusual. I don't know what's going on. I mean, we're we're simpatico, I think yeah. is the word. I don't know if the French use that and the Latins, I don't know, somebody uses it. But it's interesting. And listen, again, I point out your work has been extraordinary. And we've pointed out a number of things in the market. Back in June, you thought we were going to bounce. We did. I think you thought we probably sold off a little too much. And we're going to take a look at a couple things. We're going to look at charts. But the first thing we need to look at, because I think this is the market that we find ourselves in, the divergent opinions that are out there. I mean, you have some people on the ledger that think this thing is going to crater. You have other people, Tom Lee thinks, you know, we're headed north of 5,000. And this just shows you, this slide just shows you exactly what I'm talking about. These are two extraordinarily well-respected individuals in the market, and they couldn't have more divergent opinions. And you talk about Scott Minard, you know, he thinks we're going to see a 20 to 30% drop by October, mid-October. That's a month away for you playing our home game. Jim Cramer says the worst is in. Uh, you know, I come down on the Scott Minard ledger, and it's not because my dogma suggests that, Carter. It's just because of the backdrop and a lot of things that Scott is saying make sense to me. I understand what Jim is seeing, and there are a lot of people that submit that, you know, Jim's probably going to wind up being right. There are a lot of people thinking that, you know, we're on the precipice of something extraordinarily large to the upside. What are your thoughts on both those calls? Then we're going to look at your chart and maybe we can sort of navigate this thing. I mean, I think it's ever thus, right? There's this tendency, it's the human condition to have a view and then to either abandon it when it's wrong or to dig in. And not to say that either of these men are abandoning or digging in a prior call, but we always see this, right? There are people who are constructive. There are people who are built in their DNA to Mm -hmm. always be bearish. And right now it is more of the same. We do know that that strategists in general, in aggregate on Wall Street, sell side strategists, there's probably 15 to 18 that are tracked. Their price target for the year when it started has been ratcheted down all year. And now we're starting to see one or two that are starting to move their targets up. Always see some outliers in these things. And I guess my point is I've seen anywhere as low as, you know, 3,200. Again, to your point, extraordinarily well-respected people on the one side and then north of 5,000 on the other side in a relatively short period of time. You know, I think people are looking at sort of the next six months or so. And look, I think you'll submit that maybe extremes you sort of throw out and we're muddling here in the middle. And I will tell you, the chart we're about to look at suggests exactly that. You know, the downtrend line that we traded spot up to that you said basically time to pull the ripcord on this rally, that proved to be correct. But this very short uptrend line we held as well. Now, I look at this and say, 
We're forming a pennant. I would submit, Carter, the way I look at this, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but the more powerful of the two lines is the longer duration line, I would think, and the less steep line. But maybe that's my dogma, but I think that's how you probably look at this as well. Well, I think that's right. I think the thing that we all need to or should marvel at is how the market has respected those trend lines, right? Because that gets to the very circumstance of, is it almost always all technical? I mean, Mm -hmm. why is it stopping to the penny right at those arrows? That's not a valuation juncture. That's not a Fed day. It's simply that sometimes it's where and how money flows in and out of the market. And there are a lot of neural networks and supercomputers and other very quantitative programming type participants that use charts. And so just to your point, we have a circumstance we're working into the apex of those two converging trend lines. You have a the minor uptrend line in effect since the June low. So that's nine, 10 weeks old. But we have the downtrend line in effect since Jan 4, which is 10 months old. And so here we are, markets kind of a pair of twos, and that's an important judgment in many ways, which means to say, is there any discernible trade here? Now then one can have a bias. Mine is actually to the downside, what yours is, I believe, but that's what makes a market. Yeah, I agree. And, and just my thoughts quickly, I look at duration being important. In other words, when I look at double tops, the the duration in which a double top exists, if it's at six months, that's one thing. If it's a six-year double top, that's much different. It's a much more powerful indicator. And this chart to me suggests that the time frame of the longer downturn, to me, that's the more powerful of the two lines. And that's what we potentially could trade up to, although I think what's going to wind up happening, and again, maybe you can speak to this quickly, is the time decay on both those lines suggests at a certain point they intersect. And I can't tell you exactly when that is. My sense is, you know, it's probably a month or so from now. So effectively, the market can sort of vacillate in between these two lines in a continuing more and more narrow range until it basically exhausts itself or presents itself one way or another. I happen to think it's going to be to the downside. There are obviously people that think the other thing, but am I looking at that correctly? Well, that's right. What it represents is it's high variance, but low volatility. Now, I know you'd say, what do you mean? Meaning that we're whipping around, but we're, we're getting tighter and tighter. So bears and bulls are matched off, right? You're seeing and then ultimately, you, all standoffs are resolved, right? All debates come to an end and you get a winner. And my bias is down, but others are up. And we do client polls all the time. And, and I can tell you, it's, there's a lot, of, a lot of big money betting up and equally large money saying, no way is this going higher. And I think it's interesting, at least right now, at least on a day where the market the Dow's up a couple hundred points, the VIX is actually higher today, which again, I don't want you to make a big deal out of it. I just point that out to point it out. I want to ask one more question before we go to our next slide. You've obviously been doing this quite a long time. Do you find in the advent of sort of computer generated models and algorithmic trading and all those different things that have made its way into our market, that these lines are far more powerful than they were? In other words, Everybody seems to be looking at the same thing. And now there are systems set up to trade against these things. So by definition, does that make these lines self-fulfilling and effectively more powerful indicators? Is there some truth to that? A lot of truth, meaning I would say the efficacy of some of the basic technical inputs is higher now than when I was sort of getting in the business in 1989, 1988. 
it's because so many more people have embraced the science. And I think that's why when you see, just for the folks playing our home game, when you see a violation of these lines, that's why these moves become even more and more powerful, but it's to the upside or the downside. When these lines are broken, a lot of things kick in on the back of that. So just something to keep in mind, obviously, because the world is continually changing. I just wanted to point that out. The other thing we have to talk about, obviously, it's going to be the story this week. And I think a lot of what's been happening in terms of this rally has been predicated off the belief that peak inflation and inflation numbers coming down. And we're going to look at a slide. And I agree with that. I think that 9.1% print we saw is probably going to be the high. My point all along has been that inflation is going to be both pesky and persistent, along with potentially peak. And those two things, I don't, those things are not mutually exclusive. But, you know, Barron's is putting some out here, not time to celebrate, although inflation is slowing. And I think that's exactly right. And Carter, you know, you wear many hats. And I know you look at these things as well. You, know, you make fun of the fundamentals, but you do it in jest. There is some truth to this as well. The market is trading off a lot of these things. And I think what Barron's is trying to say is, look, don't get ahead of yourself. Although inflation expectation, inflation actually might be coming down. This is a very difficult thing to kill. And just when you think you've killed it historically is typically when it comes raging back. And I think that's what Barron's is pointing out. Don't get ahead of yourself. Don't you know, as they used to say in gambling, they don't pay you at halftime. And I think that's what we're seeing it here. Well, if you think about it, the peak in rates at 3.5% plus or minus was on June 14th. And what happened? The market bottomed on mm-hmm. June 16th. I mean, that's not random. And so a lot of it is based on sort of projections and uh, targets and anticipated levels for 10-year yields, for real yields commodities, the dollar, and that's why macro is so very important. Take a look at yields real quick, because we have a 10-year yields here. And, and this is something you've been pretty steadfast with, and we've pointed this out. You obviously had that huge move into the spring, subsequent sell-off. Then obviously you had the huge move into June, where we touched up to 3.5% in the 10-year. Subsequent sell-off all the way back at one point to 2.5%-ish, and then the bounce. Your work suggests that this bounce has exhausted itself, and we're going to trade lower. We're going to field a question about TLT in a second, but am I looking at this correctly? Right. And I've drawn the lines and one could say, well, that influences one's eye. The right shoulder in principle, in the head and shoulders top, is lower. You want it to be lower than the left shoulder. That's not the case here. It's made a slight high. And so defective, not perfect, but that's my interpretation that we are at a level where it's actually right to bet on bonds long. I agree with that. Now, I'll say this. There will be people out there that believe a sell-off in, in other words, a sell-off in yields, a rally in the TLT, which we're going to look at right now, if we could slide that because we have a question on the back of it. So if the TLT were to rally, meaning rates go lower, that is somehow bullish for the broader market. Now, I understand what the thought process is. I would submit, though, again, I'm not trying to sort of look through my typically half-empty lens, but Rates going lower in this environment is probably not as bullish as people think, because I think it suggests that the economy is slowing down in a precipitous way. But that's another conversation for another time. We talked about sort of small-term double bottoms. You look at this TLT, and we have a question from Stock Pains. Carter, should I buy TLT for a bounce up to 115? The chart looks like it's holding the 107, 108 level. Your chart suggests exactly that. I will tell you that if you go back to the fall of 2018, 
The low that we just made sort of mirrors the low we made back then. But please speak to that question in this chart. Right. Well, the first thing to address the, what you had said, which is the, the sort of the 30,000 foot view are lower rates means good for the market. Well, then when we were on the COVID low, <laughs> 10 year mm -hmm. yields were 30 base points. Uh, that wasn't good for the market, meaning it's why and how rates are moving, which is the point you made, Guy. So to that question, that inquiry 115, that's exactly sort of where that downtrend line comes into play. Now, it depends how quickly you go there, right? It basically comes into play at 111, 112. But if you go there more quickly, if rates were to come down fairly precipitously, 115, sure. I'm yeah, I agree with that. And listen, this is a downtrend line. And this is one of those things where you know, you might get a violent break of this downtrend line. I'm not predicting anything, but it's just something you should watch. I think the non-consensus trade here, again, my opinion, is that yields, 10-year yields at least, are going lower. Lower yields means, again, I know most folks know this, but if they're new viewers now, means the TLT goes higher, and obviously an inverse correlation. So I'm with you on this one. And We'll see what it means for the broader market if we're both right. But for a trade to answer the question, you know, I think against that recent low that we made a week or so ago in the TLT, I think the TLT is a long trade here. Again, betting that yields are going lower is a great risk reward bet. And you know, maybe tomorrow we'll take a look at a longer term TLT chart that actually shows where we traded down to in the fall of 2018, just to give some perspective longer term. The other thing people are looking at here, Carter, is the dollar. And you know, you had a tremendous call back in June. You know, you thought the dollar rally would continue, but you thought first it would exhaust itself and would have a sort of a look back to an uptrend line. And that's exactly what happened. And now it's sort of happening again. A very defined uptrend, very well-defined uptrend, makes sense, goes back to obviously December of last year. Here we are in September. But along the way, we've had some sell-offs and we're in the midst of one now. Right. And so... Well, it doesn't have to be quite so perfect or convenient as it would suggest here to the penny. The red arrow, down arrow drawn, that's the implication. At least that's what my eye sees. I think this current sell-off in the dollar is likely to carry further. How much further? Down to the trend line. Do we know that it's going to bounce there? No, but that's a reference point that has to be looked at, examined, or, or used for making judgments about the dollar. It's interesting, you know, we're not going to look at Bitcoin today because that's typically Dan's purview, but we've seen a pretty significant rally in Bitcoin recently. I don't think it's coincidence that it's coincided with this dollar move lower. And I don't think it's a coincidence at all that it also coincides with this belief that maybe the Fed has done their job. Maybe inflation will come down on its own. And maybe this next rate hike that we see will be the last one for a while. So I think to a certain extent, again, my opinion, I think the equity market, again, is front-running that the same way it did a few weeks ago. I think the currency market is front-running that. And again, don't dismiss for a second that that 75 basis point hike we saw from the ECB doesn't factor into this. Again, anticipated, but the largest hike in the history of the ECB. So obviously, that is somewhat dollar negative. And again, I will say this in terms of bond yields, you're seeing what's happening in bond yields as well. So a lot of strange things going on. I think it's all sort of a front running of a Federal Reserve that people think might blink after this meeting. I don't know. I listen to them, Carter, and I hear something entirely different. I know you listen to them as well. Again, I think people hear what they want to hear and disregard the rest to quote a song from the great Simon and Garfunkel. But that's just me. Quick thoughts on that before we go to tech. 
I mean, all of the above, and I would point out about Bitcoin is that in many ways, it's the ultimate distillation of risk reward, of beta, of risk on, risk off. And we know that Bitcoin's recent recovery over the last four or five, six sessions after what was a fairly precipitous sell-off reflects what's going on in the equity market, which is to say, if you were to simply do a screen and look at the best performing stocks of the past five days, one trading week, they have one thing in common. They're the worst performing stocks on a trailing 12-month basis, right? It's these bombed out names, including Bitcoin, that really have come to life over the past four or five days. Keep an eye on folks. Just something to think about. And if you're trying to sort of this again, just our opinions as to why these things are happening, but just so, it's a point of view, point of reference. Chip weakness is a concern. Something you've pointed out. You've been, again, Johnny on the spot with this one. Bloomberg writes about it haunted by palpable fear of chip industry weakness. And, you know, we're seeing it. And when you listen to some of the commentary out of these huge semi-names, specifically NVIDIA, to a certain extent, AMD, but we've seen it across a litany of companies. Intel is its own animal. I mean, so many of Intel's things are self-inflicted, but, you know, there's this concern out there that there was a huge double ordering thing. And, you know, the chip shortage, which really gave some giddy up to a lot of these names, along with low yields, the whole thing has been sort of turned on its head. So as we take a look at the next chart, what are your thoughts on this? Right. So we know that semis are considerably weaker year to date than tech in general. But what I have here is the SMH, right, the ETF that tracks semis, among others. And I'm trying to highlight two things. It's the converging trend lines, which is the circumstance for the general equity market, but also where semis are in relation to their pre-COVID high. And the point of pointing this out is that we'll see software later, semis are still so far above their pre-COVID high. The risk is that ultimately there's more downside in this particular area of tech. Let's talk about that for a second, because I think it's important. I mean, these names, the rally we saw in these names was, I mean, you probably can go back to 2000 or so. I mean, I guess the late 90s in terms of some of the moves we saw in, in some of those tech names. But we saw some incredibly powerful moves in so many of these names, given back a lot of it. I mean, NVIDIA, for example, which was on the verge of being a trillion dollar company, is now probably flirting with either side of $350 billion or so dollars in terms of market cap. So Bloom is off the rose in a lot of these things, but how important are semiconductors, again, your opinion and what your work suggests to the broader market? Because this uptrend line that you've drawn, this pennant that we find ourselves in, the same pennant, by the way, that we looked at with the S&P 500, it's coming to a theater near you and it's going to resolve itself one way or another. I think I know how it's going to resolve itself. Now, maybe if rates do go lower, that will mitigate some of the move to the downside. But how important is this and what does your work suggest? Right. So, again, there are two things. Semis, because they're cyclical and people say, well, no, they're less cyclical now. They're more of a growth. That's just not true. Right. They're, they've always been the cyclical component of tech as opposed to defensive. And they still are very cyclical. It's a boom bust cycle oversupply and so forth. But the key here is semis were such an outperformer off of the COVID low. They also peaked earlier than the market, right? The market peaks, of course, Jan 4 and semis peaked back in the autumn of 2021. But if we look at this, sort of remember this chart and then look at software, and we might have that next. Yeah. 
you'll, you'll see the difference of where semis are in relation. So, okay, now this is, this is the point. Look at IGV. Now, IGV is a broad aggregate of software names, Microsoft being the biggest and 8% weight, but it's 70, 80 names. Software gave back all of its gains, got right back to the pre-COVID high. Now, if you go back to semis, semis are still well above their pre-COVID high, meaning there was that much more excess in semis, which means in many ways that is yet to be wrung out. I agree with that. And we mentioned software. Let's take a look at what's happening this week, because it, as it turns out, not only is it an important week for economic data, it's an important week for software as well. Oracle today after the bell, Oracle for you playing our home game was my hope trade, the O and my hope trade last year, I think my years get mixed up and Oracle had a tremendous run to the upside. Workday analyst meeting tomorrow. And then Adobe on Thursday, people say Adobe. Adobe is a big deal. Very important company, high valuation company that historically has seen some really wacky post-earnings moves. So just something to keep in mind. We looked at the IGV, but let's look at it again. Because as Carter just mentioned, we traded down to the pre-COVID highs. We sort of bounced, but here we are again. I don't know how this resolves itself because so much starch has been taken out already. But if you have another leg lower here in software, names, by the way, that on a valuation basis are still expensive. Again, I'm sort of rational. I'm not rationalizing. I'm putting them all in the same basket. There are some that are cheaper than others, obviously. But in the aggregate, this is still an expensive group of stocks. What happens theoretically if this IGV gives it up at this support line? Right. So it, it, it's been flirting with that. And in fact, broke slightly ever so slightly below it, fighting it off, fighting it off. But we can also look at this same chart with converging trend lines, which would be the same circumstance as semis. And so the risk here is that weakness ahead, any immediate weakness in the days, weeks ahead would represent two things. You'd be back to the level of support, the the dashed blue line representing the level of the pre-COVID high, but you'd also be, with any incremental weakness, you'd be undercutting the converging trend line from the bottom. It's not good. It's just not. No, good. it's not good. And again, you know, you don't have to, I think what's interesting about Carter's charts is you don't have to make decisions on what you think is going to happen. You just have to wait for it. In this case, again, to resolve itself and to have sort of this visual in your mind and say, okay, this makes sense to me. If it breaks to the downside, maybe I'm making a bet in the S&P 500. If somehow we break to the upside, maybe that's going to be bullish, somewhat counterintuitive, but maybe that semis get a little rise on the back of something like this. But let the charts do the work for you. But again, I think, Carter, you have to be ready to act once they do. You have to have a, when Carter sends out these charts, you have to look at them and you have to have a plan in place once you do see them. Does that make sense? Because I think what happens a lot of times, people get caught off guard by the moves and like, shit, I missed that. And you missed it because you didn't have a plan. I mean, the work is out there for you. Let the lines be your guide to a certain extent. Well, that's right. And not to imply, of course, as we all know, it's infallible. Let's say it starts to break to the downside and one then gets short and ends up being a so-called uh, a bear trap. And then mm -hmm. it Ricochets. Look, it, it broke below that support line a couple times then. So it's treacherous always, but good technique argues for going with the ball. And we know that. So the great linebackers, I mean, I know you played high school football. I played high school varsity football. 
a linebacker doesn't think to himself, you know what? Every time this team is down in the third quarter, they always pass when it's second. Let me drop back and get ready. No, they wait and they react to the ball. It goes left, let's go left, it goes right. Just wait and react. And good technique says you press it if it breaks. And if you're wrong, get the hell out. Yeah. But you don't say, hey, I'll get ready in advance and anticipate. It's just go with the ball. No, it's interesting. You know, there's a school of thought, don't think, react. And again, that's true. And so much of this is reacting, but so much of it, again, I mean, you will su- submit as well. You have to have a game plan in place, whether you're playing football, whether you're trading stocks, you have to have that game plan in place. Like, okay, Carter laid it out. He gave us the, the scouting. He let us know what the tendencies are. And if this happens, this is my going to be my reaction. But I think too often people get caught up in sort of the paralysis by analysis instead of just reacting to what they're seeing. That's right. And it's what makes it ultimately an even playing field. Any individual, if they stick to the discipline and have a plan, you're as well off as any so-called investment professional out there. I agree. And listen, Carter, you know I love you. I want to thank you for your time. We're getting out of here a little early today because unfortunately I have to film something, which is If you were curious, one of the reasons I am all knotted up today, but that's a great Carter Braxton Worth. You can check out his work on Worth Charting. He does extraordinary work. He does the midnight madness. He does all kinds of crazy shit because that's the way he's wired. He don't look crazy. Let me tell you something behind that, that austere, that, that very proper person, there lies a killer behind those eyes. And I say that in only the highest of respect regards, Carter Braxton Worth. I want to thank Backset. I want to thank the guys and gals at Open Exchange. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m. Dan will have landed by then. He'll be joining us from California. We'll see you tomorrow, folks. Audi 5000.